Welcome. Bad Methods, episode two. Yeah. A podcast critiquing all things bad science. Yes. I'm Devin. I'm Mona. And today we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of stuff. Yes. Some papers we found that made us upset, that made us rage, and some personal stories from grad school, maybe. Yeah. And starting off with that, actually, um, I wanted to say we got a lot of great feedback around the first episode that we put up. Um, We will be searching for a permanent theme song and we welcome input on whether or not any music that we're using is something that you happen to like or something you can't stand. Uh, Let us know either way. Um, We also got some great feedback about how we can divide our the sections of the podcast into chapters. We're going to try to do that going forward to make it easier for you to listen to. Um, And really, we're just going to keep going, raging about science. We're always welcome to specific topics that you'd like us to delve into in any area of science. We also hope to be bringing on guests as soon as possible. So yeah, um, without further ado, let's begin. Awesome. So, Mona, how's uh, how's how's your how's your week been? How's things been going? Anything you've come across that's uh, upset you or you found interesting in terms of the science realm? Well, joking. I think uh, starting off of that, I made a joke last week since I actually just got a new job. That uh, I was, uh, I think, at some point in a conversation, I had said, "Excuse me, I'm too busy single-handedly closing the gender pay gap," which. In large part, I think, was a joke made out of an article I read in the New York Times a couple of days earlier, which was insane. So the link is going to be posted underneath the episode in case you're curious about reading this. Um, Apparently, the gender pay gap begins in childhood. What? Yeah. So... uh, Someone did, so there were actually a few studies that were synthesized in this article that were fairly interesting. The one that I'm going to pay most attention to was data taken from an app called Busy Kid, which is apparently a chore app where parents can just like put in the chores that their kids have to do. And when they complete them, they get paid for completing the chores. Wait, we're not outsourcing chores to technology? Yes. Okay. I mean, you know, like giving kids something to do with their iPhones, I guess, besides playing Candy Crush or... Uh, yeah, sure. But yeah, apparently on this app, uh, what they found was that girls make half the weekly allowance that boys do. Jesus. Um, tend to get... Apparently you can get bonuses on this app, tend to get less of a bonus. What parent is giving their child a bonus for the chores? I don't know. Okay. That... Is this like is this like a form of trickle down wealth? Parent, I don't know, rich parent like makes a lot of money, is inclined to introduce child to finances with app, um, receives a bonus and then trickles down the wealth. I mean, because yeah, this app is only for like affluent families. Like... I mean, it isn't exactly, but it's worth noting that there well... probably is a highly self selecting group in terms of who would know about this. Pretty much. And who'd be likely to sign their kids up for it. 
Yeah, but looking like these average numbers, and it's like, yeah, they're really like boys are making like twice as much as girls average weekly. Yeah, this the, is ridiculous. The boy, the the boys' average was a uh, thirteen dollars and eighty cents per week. Girls was six dollars and seventy one cents. So I guess my question is like, do they do they have any kind of data on like what the specific chores were? Like, do we have like an equal comparison of like you know? taking out garbage, washing dishes, cleaning house, and do, like, do we see, like, that clearly, like, for the same types of chores, same amount of time, boys and girls are being paid less, or, like, do we not have access to this yet? So that's not in here, but one thing that was brought up in this article, um, which is why I'm actually going to categorize this as good methods, was they brought in a lot of different sources and sort of set the ground for a really interesting study to be done in, like, perhaps an experimental setting. Mm. So what they found was uh, a previous, like another study that was done or no, it was, uh, yeah, it was the American Time Use Survey. Uh, a researcher at the University of Maryland found that uh, out of 6,000 high school students ages 15 to 19, boys tended to do more work uh, than girls. Uh Girls tended to do about 45 minutes of housework per day, and boys tended to do about 30 minutes. There wasn't any more detail discussed in this article about what types of work, but just in general, girls tend to do more, and other research suggests that they might get paid less for what they do. Yikes. So, a good starting point for for the studies. Yeah. Um, But this is kind of horrifying. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we're just effectively just teaching girls to settle for less at such a young age. Apparently, though, according to uh, the article, the gap does seem to be shrinking. They did say, uh, quote-unquote, there are a few signs that the gap is shrinking, uh, that there is, quote-unquote, a variety of data showing that girls still spend more time on household chores, but apparently it is, like, the child gender chore pay gap is also very slowly beginning to close. Hmm. Interesting. Did you get a lot of chores as a kid? Um, I mean, just like typical laundry, clean dishes, uh, help around the house, take out the trash. You, male child, lift heavy things. Yeah, pretty much. Just lift heavy things, <laughs> yeah. Even when I wasn't even that big of a child, it was just like, you, male, lift the heavy thing. My muscles haven't formed yet. Don't care. Male, lift. <laughs> but, yeah. I don't even remember. I don't believe I ever actually got paid a wage in res- like like uh, in response to how many chores I got. I know I got an allowance eventually, but that wasn't necessarily tied to how much work I did. It was just you get X amount per week, and we also expect you to contribute a certain amount to what goes on in the house as well, regardless of whether regardless of the wage or the allowance not wages well i will say this um i have uh a ton of cousins who i grew up with who were the same age and my grandfather would like give me more money like when he would dole out cash so like he would give like my female cousins like five dollars and then give me a whole 20 oh man and like that that was look at you amassing wealth oh at an early age <laughs> i put away money back then did they notice the difference yes they did what did they say about it they would go and tell their parents and they would go hey grandpa gave Devin 20 and gave us five <laughs> what is up with that and 
Yeah, I guess like the kind of parental response was, ah, you know, he's 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 the boy. He, the, your grandfather's going to show favoritism to him. Nah. Yeah. So you know that that thing. But yeah, I guess. But I didn't I didn't do chores for that. <laughs> okay. I was just I was just me being me as a male. So damn, <laughs> I didn't even have to work for that twenty. Oh my god. Yikes. But you know, I think this is this was a really interesting article. Uh, this was like an interesting use of the data from this app. Um, overall, and this was a uh, yeah. I think, like you said, this sets up for really good further follow up study. Yeah, I think that uh, somebody with the inclination to perform a research study in this area could potentially synthesize this type of information the way that it was done for this article. So. We're going to talk a lot about sampling later on in this episode. And one of the big things that I'm seeing here is data from a lot of different samples mm-hmm. being synthesized to create a cohesive argument. There's evidence for this one thing, there's evidence for this other thing. And there were samples with different age groups. The Busy Kid app uh, tended to have, uh, or at the very least from what I've seen, what I saw, they tend to advertise for a much lower age range. It's not so much for. Like, I don't know, they didn't, like, the actual analysis didn't include anything about the age of the kids. Mm-hmm. But they do appear to market to much younger kids, between ages maybe, like, 5 and 10. Now, generally, overall, Mona, like, why why do we want to, like, get, like, as many samples or as many diverse samples uh, when we're investigating anything? Uh, the short answer that I'll give now and elaborate on further later is you can't, generalize you can't make an assumption about the whole of humanity or a giant phenomenon that occurs across different ages uh socioeconomic statuses uh racial ethnic groups cultures countries based on a small sample from a monolithic population you know what i think that's a great segue into uh one paper okay uh so uh, a couple weeks ago, I was going through uh, my timeline, and I came across a paper that was recently published. Your Facebook timeline? Yes. Okay. Facebook timeline. Um, follow a bunch of like science uh, science pages, and so this is a this is a paper that got my attention maybe because it's in my field uh, in evolutionary psychology. Um, a lovely field, which Mona has a ton of like interesting opinions about. Oh yeah, I can rage about Evo Psych forever. It's. <laughs> But this is uh, an example of bad evolutionary psychology. Um, evolutionary psychology that really annoys the hell out of me. Uh, so this is... <coughs> cough, cough, cough. Bad evolutionary psychology for a field that I would argue has a lot of flaws <sighs> on the whole to begin with. We're going to get into that in a whole separate episode. Yeah. But since we're talking about sampling, we're just like poor methodological approaches in general. This paper, uh, published in the Journal of Evolutionary Psychological Science, uh, entitled, Why Men Stay Single? Evidence from Reddit. But um, oh, God. Evidence from Reddit. Let me tell you something. Like, I went through this paper, like, with a red pen, like, sitting on the train, headed somewhere, like, early in the week, just mad. <laughs> just, like, audibly, just, like, yelling out, fuck fuck you, this is wrong, I don't like this at all. Um, That's pretty much what the notes on the paper say, too. It's Yeah, it's just like red pen all over, like a hard copy of this paper, just going, I hate this guy. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to uh, name the author uh, here, mainly because I can't pronounce his name, um, so I will not butcher his name. Um, that is the only bit of respect that I will uh, 
give towards him as I go through this paper. Uh, from a theoretical and empirical standpoint, this paper is atrocious. Yes. So, first and foremost, um, the paper um, is really... First, it proposes to investigate the phenomena of singleness. And the intro to the paper starts out with a lot of statistics on kind of, you know, household, like single households, uh, the rise and kind of like people who are getting married later, etc., etc., etc. Not specifically focusing on any sex, but just speaking about people who are single. Um, so with no justification whatsoever, the author then decides to investigate, well, why are men staying single? And the reason <laughs> why this paper uh, is in, published in the Journal of Evolutionary Psychological Sciences, the author's theoretical framework is that opting out of relationships, or I guess if I have to steal the word from the men's rights activist, <laughs> incel. Uh, Do you explain that? Oh, what's that, involuntary celibate? Yeah, basically either you are single by choice or you're single because you can't find a partner. Yeah, like, this entire paper just, like, screams of men's rights activism uh, and just angry men who just, like, are annoyed that they can't get laid. Um, So the evolutionary argument is that uh, incel or removing yourself um, from the mating pool uh, may have some evolutionary adaptive function. Um, because you're effectively waiting for a better opportunity. Okay. Um, so when we talk about when we talk about adaptiveness, uh, <laughs> so it's like rejecting a job offer or something. Pretty much, like so in evolutionary psychology or evolutionary theory as a whole, when we say something is adaptive, we're not saying it's good. Uh, kind of like in the common lingo, how we speak on day to day, something is adaptive if it leads uh, to a greater chance of you reproducing. Um, and also like leaving off offspring that you're then, and then your offspring then having offspring. Um, evolution is effectively about the genetic representation in subsequent generations, as okay. my, um, as my old professor used to say in so, undergrad. fundamentally, literally anything and everything that human beings or really like any living creature does that determines whether or not their gene pool continues into the next generation. Their, yeah, their individual, uh, their their own genetics uh, perpetuate in the next generation. Okay. Um, so, like, the classic example that kind of gets used in certain, like, Evo psych classes now is, like, uh, you, we notice that people who have higher, people who have higher degrees generally tend to have less children. So that's the framework. Uh, the framework is that, hey, not uh, being single might be uh, an evolutionary uh, adaptable strategy. Uh, advantageous strategy. What annoys me about the framework here is that the author notes, the author makes constant mention of the pre-industrial environment, uh, before industry, before cities, etc., etc., for agriculture, really, and makes the argument that effectively flirting, flirting skills weren't selected for because in the past, you either got your mates through your parents who provided provided them for you, or through force. Yeah. Done, done, done. So basically, uh, so what this author is arguing, <laughs> what this author is arguing is that way back when you either got laid or got a partner because either mommy and daddy brought home pussy, or uh, you took it. And what annoys me most is that there aren't enough citations for this. It's also a really shit argument. And also, 
any perfunctory literature search into anything in anthropology would show you that that is not, especially in like pre-agricultural societies, how people made it predominantly. So from a theoretical standpoint, this paper's shit. Going forward, from an empirical standpoint, actually getting the data... Right. Like, um, we're just going to skip over the whole, like, this dude clearly doesn't think that women are people because it's too fucking obvious. Yeah. Yeah, like... like, Because, like, like, the paper started off just like, hey, why are people single? Like, oh, hey, there's a rise in people who are, like, single. No justification. I now want to go into why men specifically are single. Uh, And then, like, this very just-so story of just, oh, well, in the past, this is how mating went. So now I want to investigate why there's this mismatch. The idea that, well, if we did things like this in the past, then our current environment is messing up with that. And our our evolved behavioral strategies haven't caught up to the new environment. So, no, I have a question. Do you think Reddit is a good source to get any kind of data in behavioral sciences? As as an actual data scientist now, yes, I, j- I recently got a job as a data scientist. Oh, yay! Um, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> just like no, maybe, maybe. I mean, okay. So what this guy did, he went on Reddit, um, which to be honest, like every time I hear about like Reddit threads, it's never anything good. Um, I'm not on, I'm not on Reddit myself. I mean, if you're like, I don't know, hate researching into what's what's the bottom feeders of the internet doing or something. But. I mean, so gen- like, I mean, first of all, generally, like, what you would do in almost any paper is you would give some justification as to why you are pulling your sample, like, from this particular area, especially if it's novel. And a lot of papers, at least from what I've come across, at least even in my time in grad school, I never saw a lot of papers that pulled from Reddit. Uh, in the methods section of this paper. The author in no way, shape, or form justifies their use of Reddit with any external source. What the author effectively does is cite a Reddit article which says how many people use Reddit and then goes, yeah, this is why I'm using Reddit. Because my sample is big. So basically, I'm going to cite... I'm going to cite a Reddit article saying how awesome Reddit is as my justification (coughs) for using Reddit. (laughs) Like, are you serious? Yes, apparently. From there, uh, the author, the principal investigator, uh, found a thread on Reddit effectively asking men, why are they single? Right, he found this thread. He didn't didn't actually, like, start a thread, start a survey. He just found an existing thread. I mean, like, sites sites that, oh, hey, Reddit is this awesome place where so many people go on. Let me not, like, instead of hosting my own thread and asking for specific people, specific circumstances, etc., just go find the thread and just pulls all of the responses. Specifically removes people who are in relationships. I kind of get that. Right. And, like, the threaded thread in the paper is just an Ask Reddit question that's just, men, why are you single? Yep. Uh, removes people, removes responses from people who indicate that they're in a relationship, and specifically removes any responses from women, or at least people who identify as women, in the comments. Yeah, so basically people who responded and said, I am a woman and I am single because of this. Yes. So he's assuming that anyone who didn't specifically say, I am a woman, is a guy. Yes. That's really just like really just the surface here at this point in terms of what's wrong with this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, like, the idea behind the paper was, like, theorizing that, well, men are intentionally staying single, but ultimately, in terms of the findings, a lot of the categories that uh, these responses got put into show that a lot of these men aren't single by choice, at least the people who responded to this uh, thread. Um, and so you would think maybe some of the female responses might give an indication as to why some men are single. Maybe. Maybe if you just focus purely on a heteronormative uh, dating, mating kind of environment. Right. So what do we got so far? No proper justification for using Reddit. A random thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, cherry picking uh, some of the uh, responses. Or leaving out potentially useful responses. Yeah, and also uh, very shaky justification for a lot of the categories that were created. So, so ultimately, I mean, like there were like thousands upon thousands of responses because you know a ton of dudes got on this thing and just like bitched and moaned about um, <laughs> no. literally <laughs> some of them were li- the, the ones yeah. that they chose as examples like, like, were very bitchy and moany like you know like I'm, I'm, I'm all for having like you know good conversations about you know people who want to talk about like why they're lonely some of those frustrations like I'm all for that I'm all for those very healthy conversations getting on a reddit thread and bitching about what's this right here oh, oh I'm under six foot so women don't see me like I, I, I got no time for this bullshit <laughs> I really don't. I don't don't have time for your bullshit right now. Neither do the women who listen to his complaining. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, So, ultimately, of the thousands upon thousands of of responses that were taken, um, the author and the researchers who helped um, categorized all these responses into 43 categories. Um, And these categories range from poor looks to uh, poor flirting skills... um, Recently broke up, or... Oh, no available women. That's an interesting one. No avail- I have no avenues for me. Okay. Okay. All right, that's... I could hear that one out, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. But, like, a lot... The, like, the categories that this paper ends up focusing on are the ones where the guys are like, Oh, I'm ugly. Oh, I have low self-esteem. Oh, my God, I don't know how to flirt. Well, I mean, they focus on them because, like, these were the high... They, they put those in... They had higher frequency. Right. But even then, like, the method by which they created the category was a little shaky. So he said that he had a few uh, research assistants in his lab that essentially helped him create the categories... But there was little information about some of the methods behind actually, like, coding coding the responses, which is what it's called. Qualitative research is messy. It takes forever. Quick question. What's... Can you break down what's qualitative research? Okay. Taking things that aren't inherently numbers. If you're doing a survey, you ask people... A lot of times you'll ask people questions like, oh, on a scale of one to five, how happy are you today? That's quantitative research. It's research that already comes in numerical form, easily fits into categories, and you can do a lot of statistical tests on. If you're dealing with something that's more qualitative, like... Let's say you do an interview, or you do a focus group, or you categorize a bunch of responses to a Reddit thread. That's qualitative research. Awesome. It's, it's, it takes longer. It does. Uh, yeah, qualitative research as a whole, it's, it's a very labor-intensive process, analyzing that data. And so I will, that's the only positive thing I'll mention, like they do, they do at least specify in the method section of their paper that they did to go through a fair amount of time, like getting agreement amongst independent 
coders to make sure that they were putting that there was agreement in terms of like this particular comment belongs in this particular category. Yeah. What you don't want to do in research is just have one person look through a bunch of like comments or sentences and go, I think this belongs in this category. You want someone else coming from the outside and going, yeah, I think that we'll go with that. Yeah. Uh, generally people who don't even know about the study. So that way there's no bias mm -hmm. in terms of categorizing these comments. So, I mean, there was some good had, from this paper in terms of, you know, agreement amongst Amongst the people. two people. Historically, when I've done qualitative research, because basically they had two separate researchers going through every single one of the responses and putting it in a category. And then they decided whether or not they agreed on which category it belonged into. If they couldn't come to a consensus, they discarded that response. Generally, when I've done qualitative, we've done three or more people mm. um and in a study like this that i would argue has a topic that could be highly charged Very. or the yeah or at the very least like there's plenty of bias in terms of like this is a person's own self-reflection on why they're single there's a lot of sarcasm in the selected responses that were available in these um what was oh here uh, the one sample response from poor looks that they gave was a dude who said, "Cause I am ugly as fuck and has been and have been cursed with awful genetics." Sure, you might be able to categorize that into poor looks, but you may also want, for example, you may want women, you may want um, people, basically people who aren't white men and aren't likely to be as aware, I guess, of the types of responses here. You, you just want you want as much diversity in terms of code like the coders looking at these responses as possible can i can i even throw a little extra shade on this paper do it so uh we're mentioning like the amount of people you would need uh to independently kind of verify um where a comment should go in terms of like a category so there's a sentence that mentions um hey we had a grad student come in who helped with one of the authors Authors is plural. Yeah. There's only one author for the final <laughs> published product, which tells me, at least just from my own experience in grad school, um, that this guy booted someone from the paper. Yeah. Um, so it was probably a PhD student dying for a publication. Most likely. So. Oops. Yeah. Academia. God. Ugh. But yeah, so. Um, at the end of the day, we have 43 categories from all of these comments. Um, and that's really it in terms of the quantitative analysis that we were promised in the beginning of the paper. 43 categories, their frequencies. Um, no further attempt to uh, classify these or like shrink them down. And, um, and then a final discussion section of the paper, which uh, goes on in quite length with a, the lack of sites justifying why these results make sense. Yeah. Um, mainly going back to the, well, in evolutionary times or in the ancestral environment, there weren't selection pressures for flirting skills because men just got laid through their parents or by force. So this makes sense. And even a bad understanding of evolutionary psychology, one would argue that that's not primarily how people made it in the past. Right, like, and it's, he didn't even cite any sources for that part no. either. He just made this claim in the discussion that this is how men got laid at some point in the past. Because, I don't know, at this, like, supposedly, imagine I don't know, this imaginary point in the past when humans were hunter-gatherers, women were all just subservient, and that like, was pretty much it. Like, 
I guess that you could even take, like, you know, some of the more criticized the controversial elements of evolutionary psychology that are contested, and you can critique this. I mean, like, sexual selection theory as a whole would make an argument that women drive um, traits and behaviors in men because they are the ones who are selecting who they mate with. Uh, less so that men are just waiting around for women to be brought to them or taking it. Um, or, you know, taking women by force. Right. Um, so, the theoretical standpoint, I, I, this this is bad. I'm really surprised this even got published. Um, but then in terms of the methods uh, and actually getting the data, uh, this is if not as bad, probably even worse. Um, a poor source to get the data, no justification, and as far as I'm concerned, um, a flimsy results section, which is just a bunch of worthless categories, no real way to kind of break it down even further, like kind of concise them down even further, or do anything with it. And uh, it really feels like the author is just ranting on and on about their ideas of yeah. the ancestral environment and using a forum to justify it and masquerading that as quantitative data analysis. Yep. And I think one of the little things that also, I think one of the mistakes that this author made that you often see in a lot of psychology research is he went about doing his research and collecting data as if the phenomenological experience of the person responding is the objective truth. So basically asking people, why are you single? They tell you they, why they think they're single. And that's the only perspective you get. You don't necessarily get the perspective. Like, if you really want to know, like, why are men single? Do some research outside of Reddit. Survey people. Survey people of different age groups. Survey people who are in relationships. Survey women. Why are men single? Well, I think, oh, God, no, I actually have to kind of, like, do this guy, but not give this guy credit, but like clarify. It's like the original intention of the paper was like effectively seeing that there is like men are intentionally single. So, like, that was the idea of like, oh, I'm pulling from this data source because men are telling me why they've just chosen not to, like, not to date or not to be partnered. Um, yeah. And then inadvertently finding that, oh, a lot of this is because they don't believe they can find a partner or feel that they are unable to find a partner, which what I guess at least would motivate you then to want to get a sample of women and then go, hey. Why, why is the, like, why is this dude who says he's single because he's under six feet tall actually single? Yeah. Like, there's no motivation to actually get more data. Like, if, I mean, if this paper was a hell of a lot shorter and was like, hey, I think men are single because of this dumb reason. Oh, I found out that from my results, actually because they feel that they can't, um, let me go get more data from a different group to have a or objective measure because, as Mona said, phenomenological experience doesn't necessarily match up with objective reality. Yeah, ra- rarely does. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a philosophical question, but... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, on the whole, absolutely terrible paper. I hate this paper. Throw it in the trash. I... I, I I don't want to look at this paper ever again. On a scale of one to five, very angry lab rats, what would you give this? They're burning down this fucker's office. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing we don't keep lab rats then in psych research labs. Like, the lab rats are just, like, angry at this dude right now. Okay. So, yeah, that's my, uh, that's my paper that annoyed the hell out of me this week. So, 
In addition to just this specific paper, we wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of sampling and research. And I think this is a topic that comes up a lot. And really, like, if you're doing any type of research question in literally any field, you're taking samples of something. You, you're, you're asking the question of, like, what small group of this population of my interest am I going to collect information about to then generalize to that broader population? Mm-hmm. And th- this paper, in ex- like this paper in particular, I think was a clear example of a very one-sided perspective on an issue that he's trying to make very broad claims about. So he's saying, like, why are men everywhere single? Let's ask the subgroup of human of of men on the internet who happen to use Reddit and would respond to a thread like this. So I mean, like there is like there, there is a very like a poor justification in the beginning of the uh, method section to go, hey, look at all these people who use Reddit. Look at all these statistics. An article from Reddit citing how how many people use it. It's like no. Great. It's like so you have quantity, you have repeat users. But you also, another thing that Reddit has is subreddits. Ooh, what are subreddits? I don't even know about this. I mean, that's the subreddits are just the pages and communities that people actually visit. Like, Reddit has a lot of very small insular communities. So the people who would actually be likely to respond to such a question may be belonging to some communities as opposed to others. Um, you don't necessarily know that. But even even then, like, I think this, this is an example of a really broad problem that I've seen in psychology research in general, which is just who do we actually collect information about in terms of the studies and papers that we're trying to publish? Because a lot of times we're trying to answer questions about either like general human phenomenon or the experience of a population society, maybe an ethnic minority group. But then you have to ask, like, who are you actually collecting information from to be able to draw conclusions about that much broader population? And this has been a problem in psychology research for a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, would you say, what, eight, nine times out of ten? I mean, the participants from any kind of psychological study are what? Psych undergrads. The undergrad pool in any university. Yeah. So if you've taken a psych, like an introductory psychology class in a university setting there was a good chance that you probably had to either participate in a number of psychology research studies or opt out and write a few papers in order to get full credit for the class that you were completing. And that method of just, in essence, like, coer- it's, it's functionally... It's functionally co- coercion. Yeah, you're functionally coercing, like, all the university students in a specific class into participating in research studies within a university oh, so yeah. that the professors doing the research don't actually have to find participants who aren't like like basically it's it's a popular it's a sample of convenience it's that's what it's called the subject pool so in essence it's just a pool of functionally like most like monolithic participants and i mean yeah because i mean most times i mean people who are taking psych 101 classes predominantly what 17 18 year old college freshmen yeah they're taking psych 101 because it's psych 101 yeah and yeah they have to participate in research experiments uh, if they want to pass the class. Right. And if you're a professor doing research, like if you're a researcher in a university, you're pulling only from your university's subject pool. So if you happen to work at a university that has like an overwhelmingly upper middle class white population, which is very often the case, oh, yeah. you're just getting an entirely monolithic sample. 
I mean, like, there are some studies that actually kind of, like, you know, participate, like, with other universities, like, one psych department would, you know, like, communicate and work with another to get more subjects. So, like, at least it's two different samples? Maybe. Maybe. So that's actually interesting. Like, I did my undergrad at Baruch College in New York City, which is a public institution that is largely working class. There's a much larger proportion of racial ethnic minority students And I remember that this was a thing. We had a couple of different collaborative projects where we looked at something called stereotype threat for women in math. So basically the idea that if you're put in a situation as a woman in a math class, you may react with like an, oh shit, you know, I'm the other person here. I'm expected to do poorly. And just that fear of doing poorly means you're going to do poorly. And we found in our like in our university like we partnered I believe with a different institution that was much more like had much more of an affluent student body. Uh, we didn't get the same results. Interesting. Like we ended up not actually really finding stereotype threat for women in math, especially like especially considering like the large majority of people who took part in our study were women of color, hmm. or w- women of color, working class women, women who weren't necessarily from this like single white upper middle class population. So we ended up with a lot of uh, just studies that weren't published because we didn't find the significant differences that we were looking for. And we found results that weren't congruent with a lot of the other research already published in the field. But then the thing is, the research already published in the field, of course, by researchers at institutions like like well-known institutions and stuff like the papers are more likely to get some attention but you're also going to get a student body that's pretty monolithic. Absolutely. Yeah, like if you're, I mean, in the classic example, like if you're like watching Good Morning America and they report on like some psychology study done out of Stanford or Yale, uh-huh. um, the subject pool was from students who go to Stanford or Yale. And so yeah. the we researchers leave- are extrapolating the data from those participants to everybody. Yes. And we leave you to do your own research as to what the student body at Stanford and Yale happens to look like. But... <laughs> Hint, it's probably not what you'd expect from the general human population. I mean, but that's really interesting. I mean, like, like you, you're speaking about data that you have that doesn't find, that doesn't find a phenomenon given the different sample. So, like, in this case with the, like, with the stereotype threat. Yeah. You have women and women of color who, where that effect isn't there. Yeah. Because of the environment they're in, at least we're hypothesizing. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, like, that's why the effect isn't there. And we're not publishing that. Correct. I think that, again, is a, an entire separate issue for another episode. But generally, generally with statistical tests, what you're looking for are what's called, quote-unquote, significant differences or an impact of whatever phenomena you're trying to impact, like, like trying to create. So you might have, say, uh, 300 women that you, cert- that you gave a math test to. Half of them, you tried to prime them for gender, where, like, maybe you had them read an article about how women tend to do more poorly in math than men, or you separated them by gender, you asked them, like, the first question on their exam was their gender, and then maybe the other half, you don't give them that same information, and you want to look at whether or not there are any differences. And when there are differences, we go, yay, we found significant results, let's write the paper, let's publish the thing. But then when you don't find it, things don't get published. Yeah. You just end up with a bunch of tests and surveys and questionnaires and stuff sitting in a file drawer in a lab for the next 20 years that never actually nobody ever actually learns about that information 
My uh, my first job out of grad school, I was uh, a researcher uh, for like a series of like academic research teams, and I was literally just like given data sets to analyze. And as in a lot of psychology studies, we find a lot of null findings or things that aren't statistically significant, yeah. significant effects. Right. And what ended up happening with a lot of that data was we were just like, all right, chuck it, and we'll move on to the next study. We're not going to try to publish it or disseminate it. And yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a topic for another episode. Oh my God. Yeah. But I think like, what was funny is that even though coming from a public institution, we actually had a subject pool with a student body that was more representative of much more representative, I think of like the general human population than you would get in more of like an expensive upper middle class tent, like tending private institution. But we still had so much shit on a regular basis that we dealt with. Like, there were so many unspoken rules from the side of, like, a researcher in terms of how to interact with the subject pool. Pretty much what was told. So you had the option to, like, in essence, you advertised your study through a portal that students had to look for. And then they selected whatever studies they wanted to participate in. And you can set that up at any time during the semester. And you can leave that open for the duration of the semester. Generally, most of the researchers knew early on in the semester, you're going to get the best results you're going to get more women, you're going to get people who actually pay attention to your study. And like the last two to three weeks of the semester, when everybody who hasn't completed the required number of studies is like, oh, fuck, I got to get this done. You're going to get poor quality results. You're going to get people who on a survey with a scale of one through five, will just put three or the neutral point for every single question, finish your hour long study in five minutes, and your results are fucking useless. Pretty much. And, and it's nuts, too. I mean, that's, like, that's a consequence of effectively coercing people into taking your studies. Oh, like, my God. for the God. sake of passing the class. Yeah, speaking of coercion, like, I had, an under- I had a mentor in undergrad who told me a story about one time. He had, like, he wanted to collect some additional, uh, like, data for a study that he was doing. The semester had just ended. The subject pool had closed. He sent out a memo to all of the students who were in psych in the psych one subject pool, which I believe in our school, there were generally about a thousand people every semester taking that across different class sections. And he said, I'm running some additional sessions. Please contact me at this number if you want to participate. These are the times. And during the time for the first session that he had done, which was in the middle of finals week, he had 400 people show up at his lab, just standing outside the fucking door, hoping to get one last chance to actually get the studies done in order to get the complete grade. Because a lot of times they'll dock you half a letter grade if you don't complete it. Yeah. And one guy pulled a knife on him. What? Yeah, some dude actually pulled a knife on him. He was just like, because at that point he was desperate. So he was like, I need to get this done. And yeah, this is the type of... Tales from the subject pool. Tales from the subject pool. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have anything that, that wacky. I mean, like, uh, if we're ever, if we talk about the subject pool more, like, I, I, I definitely will be inviting him on as a guest at some point, because holy crap, he has multiple episodes worth of tales that he's told me over the years in terms of just the things that have happened, the people he has met, like, the problems he's encountered with students just trying to get stuff done. And all of that just to try to find people to complete certain tasks and surveys and answer questions so they can get papers out. Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's interesting because, like, the paper we were talking about earlier, this that seemed like an attempt 
to kind of circumvent that or at least get data outside of the subject pool. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it fails spectacularly. And that's the problem, I think. If, like, especially within psychology research, if you're coming from the perspective of, oh, like, you know that the subject pool is a pretty monolithic place, but it's the main source of research participants that you're used to, everything on the internet seems like a cornucopia of, like, diversity and representativeness and, oh, or, like, oh, we have a sample that has more than 200. Like, this sample, they had, uh, ended up with about 7,000 responses. So, to a social science researcher, a lot of times it's just, Salivating. like, quantity over quality of subjects. Like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, my God, we got more than 200. Because that's pretty much, like, the upper limit for them. Like, that's pretty much around what you would get if you're working with a subject pool. You get maybe 200 people in a semester completing your survey and then you publish your study. Cause that's generally like a recommended minimum sample size, depending yeah. on de really depends on what your, how your question is structured and what statistical tests you're planning on doing. But 200 is a pretty common sample size within a university setting. Mm, yeah. So then it's like you, you suddenly like open your eyes and realize there's data everywhere outside of your university and you're just <laughs> drooling over the internet. Like, Oh my God, there's so much information here. We can use all of it. Oh, my God. But I know, like, I know cause, like, for this paper, like, I could definitely see, like, even if, if I attempted to do even something like this and just going, oh, hey, this, like, uh, forum website uh, can give me a ton of responses, like, the first question from any advisor would have been, like, I need you to find at least one academic paper that's already used this or that's shown that it's a valid uh, source of data. Right. Um, like, can somebody other than Reddit tell me if Reddit's a good source of data? And even still, like... Even still. Like, don't let that be your only source of data. And that's why I like the New York Times article. I mean, and this was this was an article for a general audience. It wasn't an academic paper. Mm -hmm. But if you're creating some type of synthesis of research in an area that really hasn't had that type of paper or, like, study or whatever done before, you want to bring in multiple sources of data. You You don't want just, like, literally the most one-sided, biased possible fucking sample you can get collect 7,000 responses, and then pat yourself on the back for doing a good job with your sample size. Man, that's, that, that, really is, that really is the thing with social science and why it is, like, really important for... I mean, it's important people to be skeptical of any kind of, you know, research, you know, at least, like, be critical. Where is the data coming from? How is it analyzed? But especially in the social sciences. Right, and how is this sample potentially a bubble? Pretty much, absolutely. Ugh. Well, I think that's it from us for this week. Yeah. Cool. So we are currently still uh, figuring out what the best possible release schedule is for our podcast. We also we uh, welcome feedback on this episode. We welcome feedback on how often you want to hear from us. And literally anything else that you want to uh, tell us, ask us about our podcast, please feel free to email us at badmethodspodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at uh, badmethodspod. Yeah. And uh, all the papers and articles that we talk about in every episode, we will uh, link them uh, in the description for every episode uh, so you can check those out yourself. Um, well, I guess in the event, if it's a, an academic article itself, you can even ask us to send it to you. I guess we could do that. We post the citations, and for the most part, the articles that we post, you can find on Google Scholar. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. All right.